Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. Big thank you to the doctors for bringing us up to 11 o'clock. We got you now for an hour of science. On the line with me are some of my favorite members of my team. Dr. Ewan, good morning. Morning. Great to talk to you. We've got Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Uh, Chris KP somehow pulled himself out of uh, storm-ridden rural <laughs> Victoria and is back online. Good morning, Chris. Oh, so good to see human faces. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got Gracie on the line from Texas. How are you going, Gracie? Hi, Dr. Shane. Good. How are you? Excellent. Good to have you on the line as well. Sorry, it's uh, what is it, Saturday night for you, 6 p.m., something like that? Yes, it's about 8 o'clock right now. Oh, 8 o'clock. Hmm. I'm out by a few hours. Not too bad. Yeah. Folks, we're going to start you off with some news, and we've got a big show, a lot of stuff coming up. So, uh, Chris KP, why don't we start with you before your internet drops out? Yeah, very wise, very wise. Um, oh, so thank you. Look, I, I stumbled upon a very cool bit of uh, bit of tech uh, news that I thought I'd run past you. So we've gone from, you know, in the olden days, we talked about robotics being exciting and all those people work in robotics, it's okay, it's still exciting. But ro- robots and robotics is all about doing things that we, you know, other things that are dangerous or repetitive, you know, that we don't want to do, that humans don't want to do, they can take care of that. But it's generally speaking stuff that is programmed into them. They can sense the world around them, but they are told what to do, if you like. When you get into the area of artificial intelligence or AI, that's when the machines start to be able to problem solve. And there's a very nifty bit of AI that's, um, that's come out of, mainly out of Google, actually, which, um, which you should know about. And it's good because of the success, but also the way in which it was done. So basically, when you, we're, trying, we're trying to put more and more stuff onto microchips all the time. Every device you've got with any kind of function, smart functionality has got microchips in it, and we're trying to jam stuff on there. There's so much stuff on there. Um, but firstly, there's, you know, it's difficult for space. Like, there's only so much geometry. There's only so many surfaces, if you like, to put the circuitry on. But also, you've got to also make the thing operate uh, efficiently, if you like, so at the right kind of speed without using too much power, without getting too hot as well. There's a lot to balance. So making up, you know, designing for chips or um, chip floor planning, as it's known, is actually a really, really intricate skill. And there are people who specialise in it because it is so difficult. And it can take weeks and months to put together the floor plan for a, for a microchip. So what these guys decided to do is go, all right, well, let's just see, can a machine do this better? So they fed it 10,000 different chip floor plans so that the machine would get a sense, the system would get a sense of what works and what doesn't, and then set it to work to start making these. And it did, in what can take weeks, a few hours. Mm. So firstly, yeah, proof of principle, AI can do this really well. But the really cool thing is not just what it did, it's the way it did it. Now, we hear all the time about the importance of diversity in the workplace, and that's good for a lot of reasons. It represents the community, it feels better, it's cohesive, but also it brings diversity of thinking. It brings different ways of seeing the world into a workplace or into a a problem-solving context, and exactly the same thing applies here too. The machine is looking at these 10,000 things going, okay, I can see what you're trying to do. I can see what kind of works and what doesn't. But have you done it like this? Mm. And then does something totally dilally that is described um, by, by the authors as looking much more organic and much less like a machine with, you know, I guess, right angles and neat lines and much more sort of crossed over and messy, if you like, but much more functional and much more quickly achieved because it's a different way of thinking. It's yeah. an AI way of thinking. So, yeah, um, it looks like AI is the way to go for designing, you know, the, in, in many ways the, the heart and soul of the devices that we depend upon more and more every day. Yep, sounds good to me. I just got a robot vacuum and I'm, I'm hooked on that. It's great. Uh, oh, I'm so uh, excited about and, that idea. And I've got to tell you, I, I'm, there was a moment where I was like, this thing's better than me at doing this. And then I thought, this thing, <laughs> this thing is better than me at doing this. And I started, yeah, it's like, I'm out. I'm done. I will never do That's, that job again. That, isn't that... Yeah, isn't that extra liberating? It's like, I would do it, but I'm no good. I'm not as good, so, you know, I can't compete with the robot vacuum. And uh, my wife keeps saying to me, we're in the future. (laughs) And I feel like Marty McFly from Back to the Future (laughs) 2. The the robot vacuum is biff. Yeah, it's all happening. Uh, Ewan, what have you got for us? 
Um, I wanted to tell a fantastic story about an extremophile. So these are, I guess, organisms or species that just have incredible powers of survival. And I guess the latest example of that is the bedelloid uh, rotifer, which are these tiny little microscopic organisms, but they are um, multicellular, which is important, and I'll get to that in a second. But this thing has woken up after more than 24,000 years frozen in permafrost. Mm. So a paper that just came out of current biology where they were looking at permafrost in a, in a river, um, when they thawed that out, this little rotifer basically just woke up and not only did this rotifer wake up, but it reproduced and Ooh. its offspring. They then, yeah, it's like, <laughs> what's up? Oh, let's get busy. And it reproduced <laughs> and they then tested to see whether they could get the, um, the offspring um, to also be frozen and then come in and out of being frozen. And sure enough, they can. So it's really important to understand that the previous record they thought for this um, species in terms of being able to sort of survive frozen conditions was 10 years. Okay, so it's kind of blown that out of the water. <laughs> um, the scientists, of course, are desperately trying to work out how they do this. So because of course it has really important ramifications for DNA repair, um, including for humans, because this is, as I said, it's a multicellular organism. So we know that fish, as an example, in Antarctica have glycoproteins and that is a form of antifreeze. Mm. So it prevents, of course, icicles forming in cells, which, of course, when they form, they rupture the cell and basically you die, which, which is the reason why people say that when Walt Disney's woken up, if he can be woken <laughs> up, it well, probably yeah. won't be in very good condition. So they're, they're really trying to work out, you know, how, how these organisms do this. Um, but I think it's just another remarkable example of these species just have incredible abilities to survive incredible conditions. And, of course, there's other examples like this, like tardigrades, as, as we know, that have been taken to space. They can be mm. bombarded with radiation. You can dry them out. You can do pretty much anything to them, and they just bounce back and say, what's up, and keep going. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, pretty pretty amazing little story. I, I just, you know, the, the bit that worries me of some of this is some of the pathogens and that that were around yes, early on. absolutely. That have woken up, see humans and go, yum, yum, and we're yeah. all freaking <laughs> out. And, <laughs> you know, we just really don't know how we're going to interact no. with some of this. And one of the big fears with me and, and the changing climate is just how how much of the biologic world we are yep. exposing that we haven't been exposed to as humans for a very, very long time, if ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was kind of my um, yeah, query this too, is like if these rotifers are surviving and other things are surviving, there's presumably pathogens or parasites within them in some cases. Mm. And if, if your host can survive, does that mean you can survive? In which case, as you say, if we thaw all these things out, are we all of a sudden going to release all these pathogens that humans yeah. haven't seen for a very, very, very long time? In which case, we might not be very well adapt, uh, very you know, be able to cope with that. So it's um, yeah, there's some big questions to be asked about indeed. what happens when the permafrost thaws, aside from the climate change impact of that. Yep, indeed. Now, uh, Gracie, have we still got you on the line there? Yes, yeah, I'm still here. Sorry, you y'all are freezing on me a few a few times no. during this, so I just went ahead and turned my camera off. All good. Now, uh, what's uh, news over there in Texas? Yeah, so a paper in Nature came out in April from a lab actually at the University of California on embedding nanoenzymes into plastics to completely degrade them. And so I don't know if you're like me, but if I read or if I think about something being biodegradable, I tend to think that that means it will actually degrade into the earth, right? Mm. Um, but there are actually a lot of biodegradable plastics uh, that go into landfills where the conditions just aren't right for them to actually break down. So they end up not even really being able to degrade any more than normal plastics would. Yep. Um, and other researchers have looked into embedding enzymes into plastics to help them degrade. Um, but it usually means we actually have a rise in harmful microplastics. So where the enzymes actually do technically degrade the plastics, but now they're basically just tinier pieces of plastic rather than actually degrading into the earth. So also adding these enzymes usually makes the plastic more expensive and compromises its integrity. Um, but the enzyme that this research group is using in California actually leaves the plastic just as strong and flexible as it was without enzymes. Hmm. Excellent. And it sounds like, uh, I mean, that, that issue of microplastics, especially in our waterways and so forth, is a profoundly disturbing um, thing for the future. I you know, don't even know where to start on that one. Yeah, definitely. And they actually found that 98% of this plastic um, will, with this enzyme, will actually um, be able to dissolve within days or mm. even underneath your household tap water. Wow. 
that is certainly a big improvement on what we've got now. Thank you, Gracie. Uh, Dr. Jen, last bit of news for this morning's segment. What do you got? I want to talk about who discovered Antarctica, Dr. Shane. Ooh. So if you if you Google it, basically all you read is stories of heroic white men. You know, mm. it's all about the imperial adventures. And so James Cook is credited as having been the first person to have crossed the Antarctic Circle. He got 128 kilometres away from the Antarctic coast. And he's quoted as saying, I can be bold to say that no man will ever venture further than I have done and that the lands which may lie to the south will never be explored. And, of course, only 48 years later, a Russian expedition <laughs> went and, you know, and saw Antarctica. So he was, he was right for 48, 48 years. years you know, yeah. Never, never 48 years. Did but... he die in that 48-year period? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a good question, probably. You, know, if you, want to, you just want to die right. Is that, is that the Not deal? Not as long as I live, right. will anyone go there? <laughs> but... But when I was in Antarctica, I, it's something I actually really thought about a lot, the fact that it's the only continent that doesn't have um, an Indigenous human population. Mm. Um, and so I was really, you know, I was really conscious that our view of Antarctica is just so European-centric and, and so male-centric too. And so I was really excited about a paper I found this week that was published in the uh, Journal of the Royal Society of New Zealand that delves into all the Maori connections with Antarctica. And I hadn't realised, but it turns out that there's this huge, long, long and rich history of Maori and, and Polynesian people being connected to Antarctica. And these were some of the earliest and most skilled navigators and right through to present, you know, much more recent times they've been involved. But there's pretty good evidence. So this paper drew together um, some of the grey literature, a whole lot of oral histories, looking at Māori carvings, looking at weavings, for the first time bringing together a whole lot of stuff and basically said, you know, they, they played a central role in our discovery and our knowledge of, of the Antarctic continent. And we're pretty sure that going back as far as 1,320 years, there would have been Polynesian and Māori sailors in Antarctic waters and they were almost certainly the first people to sight um, Antarctica. And it, it just strikes me as how, just how obnoxious it is that yet again, when you Google it, all we hear about mm. are the white European men and it was all about them. And in fact, you know, Maoris have been and have been involved with Antarctica for a really long time. So yeah. I just like this paper bringing all of these stories together to say from at least 1,300 years ago until the present, these peoples have played a major role in, in our understanding of Antarctica, in the research, in the leadership. You know, let's not um, ignore these facts. I think, too, there's an element of, you know, oh, we didn't find any Indigenous people down there. Well, you know, it's bloody cold, and I'm not sure you'd really yeah, want exactly. to live there anyway. Yeah, even if you went down there and said, hey, there's some other land in here, that's cool. <laughs> Would you really want to live there? Long? Oh, I mean, could you live there? I mean, it's actually quite a difficult... I mean, you've been there, Jen, and it's not exactly... Uh, unless you have those really, really good insulated coats, you're not going to want to be exactly. there, especially in the winter months. So, yeah, yeah, I think there's that element as well of just how... How reasonable is it to expect that there was an indigenous population living there long term in those conditions when, you know, go a little bit further north and you get to beautiful New Zealand? Yep. Exactly. So, yeah. so, but just just because people weren't living there doesn't mean they hadn't seen seen it, been there, witnessed it, started to understand it, collected data on it. You know, we're just so quick to make assumptions, aren't we? Yeah. And look, it's hard when different histories are kept in different ways, and access yeah. to some of that is something that takes a lot more work. And you know, I mean, you you and I both know, Jen, we teach a lot of communications courses, and the one thing that is really good at uh, you know getting through the people and, and being remembered by people and narratives, and and that's one of the things yep. that many of these cultures do so well and have held in in great stead for you know tens of thousands of years in some cases um you know we're, we're lucky if we can get people to remember a paper that we delivered at the conference last week so <laughs> there's some there's something in that you know there's something in that i think there's Absolutely. you know it's the way humans um record history well so thank you dr jen well um we're going to take a break in a moment folks and we'll be back in just a few minutes we're we're going to be speaking to our first guest for today, Tim Baxter from the Climate Council. He has some interesting things to say about how Australia is doing at the moment. Dr Ewan's going to join me on that call and we will uh, be speaking to Gracie, Jen and Chris uh, after that interview. So for the moment, we'll say goodbye to the team and Ewan, I'll see you in a few moments and we'll be over on the other call after some uh, nice music for you in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line now, we have our first guest for today. His name is Tim Baxter. He's part of the Climate Council. We've also got you and Richie still on the line with us. Good morning, Tim. How are you going? Oh, yeah, not so bad. It's a bit grey and dreary outside, but we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true across most of Australia at the moment. Uh, but yeah. it is winter after all, so, you know, I think we, can, yeah. we, should, we should be able to handle it. Um, now, tell us a bit about your role at the Climate Council. We've had your CEO on a few times. We had Tim Flannery on quite a few times. We've interviewed Tim Flannery live here in the performance space at Triple R. But what, what are you doing at uh, the Climate Council yourself? Uh, so I'm Senior Researcher Climate Solutions. It's a bit of a misnomer of a title, though. Basically, if it's not fires, floods and droughts, it sits with our solutions team. So mm-hmm. tracking emissions performance through different types of solar panels through to why gas is bad, all of that sits with the solutions team. Um, and, yeah, so I'm a Senior Researcher managing that side of the researchers. Hmm. So when you, I mean, when you pop your head up at the moment during the week, you, you, must, you must hear so many things about... What's going on around the world, and and look at look at Australia by comparison, and and the numbers must be just you know everywhere in your head with regards to our performance. How I mean, how would you characterise how we're going at the moment? Oh, Australia's performance is um, generally abysmal. The one saving grace is that um, the states and territories are taking a reasonable amount of action, and mm-hmm. um, you know not necessarily perfect, but very good in some instances. There are good policies in there. Um, what we see, so Australia releases its emissions data every quarter and every quarter the federal government uh, comes in and tries to take the credit for what, whatever's happened or tries to find some way of spinning it. Really, they've kind of made zero contribution to it, though, and, in fact, everything that they've done has gone back, has been pushing Australia backwards. Um, they haven't met, there hasn't been a climate policy in Australia, not a functional one anyway, that the federal government hasn't tried to repeal or gut or strip funding from. Um, that's pretty disappointing. Um, Australia can be so much better. There's no, you know, we're the sunniest continent on the world, in the world, and we're the windiest inhabited continent. It's windier in Antarctica, but that's mm. not particularly yeah. useful to anyone. Yep. Um, we really could and should be so much better. And yep. Others are doing better. Ewan? Yeah, Tim, I'm curious about, I guess, those those solutions that you just mentioned. I mean, there's still, I guess, you know, a lot of probably lack of knowledge and maybe understanding, I think, in the general populace about what are our best options in terms of renewable. I mean, you've mentioned solar. There's obviously wind, there's tidal and so forth. So, yeah, what what do you sort of see as, a, I guess, an ideal um, way forward for Australia in terms of, you know, investment? Because you often hear people saying, oh, this." There's just not enough power gener- generated by renewables. And so people will talk about, you know, nuclear as an example, as an alternative. And so I guess, you know, even as someone myself who knows a bit about this stuff, I still sort of struggle to understand kind of, um, you know, where the truth lies and, and sort of, you know, what is the, what, the way forward. So for my two cents, I'm somebody who's very much, um, if we don't sort this climate problem, we don't sort anything else. And so I tend to be... Um, climate before all else um so it means that i'm not necessarily ideologically uh, ideologically opposed to nuclear energy um but also um but it's so far away it's so far away it's just unrealistic in australia um we can get there with wind and solar if done smart and with the appropriate solutions backing it in the place where it needs to back it and so that is you know that is wind and solar plus batteries plus pumped hydro plus improving our electricity transmission network um but of course we can't just you know uh fix the amount of electricity generation for today's generation we also have to think about okay there's all the fossil fuels that are consumed directly um so whether that's petrol in your car or gas in um, boilers um or coal for steel making all of that needs to be electrified as well, so you're not just aiming at today's stuff; you're aiming at what we need tomorrow. Yep. Um, WWF has great numbers that they use, where they talk about 700% renewable, and that's what we're looking at. And that's what mm. you're talking about. You say okay, we want to electrify everything that's currently not electric. We want to b- build generation for Australia. Plus, we want to have some means to export clean energy, sunniest, yep. inhabited continent on the planet. We have kind of a responsibility to provide energy to our neighbours if we're going to get solve this climate change problem, Australia has to not just deal with itself but actually help others, um, yeah. which will bring huge benefits for Australia. So you are looking at that kind of, you know, 700%. I heard some the head of um, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency the other day saying uh, 1,000% renewable. It's like, yeah, that, this is, this is mm. what we're talking about. 
seven to ten times what yep. we're currently generating. And, you know, stop burning mud, which is basically what we do in the Latrobe Valley. Like brown coal is so, so, so far from an ideal solution mm. to, to creating energy. Um, it really is just about, like, stepping up. Yeah. Um, in a great way from where we are today. Tim, in terms of terms of Australia's capacity there, I mean, what is our potential for areas like, for example, clean hydrogen as, a, as an export? I remember years, it was decades ago now, but I remember how excited I was when some of the original um, organic polymer um, photovoltaic sort of, you know, you know uh, solar sort of scenarios that were non-silicon based were, were coming out of, some of that work was coming out of Australia, coming out of Melbourne. And I thought, wow, you know, we could be the centre of activity of this for the world. And instead we started shipping the raw materials over to other countries that could, you know, make it for us instead. Um, in terms of hydrogen fuels, I mean, given given our, our natural resources in terms of wind and solar, I mean, could we become a mecca of hydrogen supply for, for the region? Is that is that within the realm of what we can do? Yeah, so there's one, one quick thing I'm going to pick up on a, a terminology thing. If you ever hear the term clean hydrogen, mm. uh, that's... That is a euphemism. That is either um, renewable hydrogen or um, uh, gas-powered hydrogen where some of the emissions are captured by CCS, and that's... Right. Um, oh, okay. that that's is, being used that way now. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, <laughs> wow, euphemism. great. So yeah. Renewable hydrogen is, is what we're looking at, or green hydrogen or, yep. you know, is, is a really... In that area, we have an immense opportunity, mm. whether it's directly shipping hydrogen or also in the form of ammonia for fuels, right. so, um, which is something that a lot of people gloss over, um, which is one of those areas where we ship that stuff over to Singapore, to Japan, to um, Korea and places that, you know, where renewables, they don't have as much renewable potential plus, you know, population dense and all of those kinds of things. You start shipping that energy source over there um, and it allows them to decarbonise um, more effectively. And, yeah, it's immense. I mean, you, Australia, as I say, there's just, you know, not today, obviously, looking outside, but um, the solar potential in Australia, although mm. even today, cloudy day, you still get a decent amount of energy from it. Um, uh, solar and wind in Australia is a huge potential. And it also can firm up our grid as well. Um, you generate that, um, you use that, what would be sort of stranded energy, um, for want of a better word, yep. to energy products of the days when you're oversupplied in energy and that allows you to firm up the grid yeah and, and tim what what are the you know the i guess the basic economics of this in terms of you know if we did choose to go down this path of really ramping up wind and solar and, and hydrogen and so forth what what would that do to australia's economy and, and and of course job creation as well so even just i guess some basic numbers around that i mean basic numbers are hard to do because it really yeah. is <laughs> piece of string and you're talking about things that are these big picture visions that are so far off the future yeah. that it's kind of like this is what we're aiming at mm-hmm. you if you're talking about the economic benefit you have to pick a number that has a t in it like it, it will be trillion dollars yeah. wow whether it's whether it's you know one trillion dollars or 11 trillion dollars i mean at a certain point you're like uh how wealthy are we going to be on the other side of things mm. <laughs> like how yeah. much is this bringing to australia um in terms of jobs there is a, a, the transition is something that is um, required, putting a lot of people to work. And I know a country where there's a lot of people who need work at the moment. <laughs> so it yeah. seems like an ideal solution. So Climate Council had our thing last year, which was our clean job plan, where we were talking about in the short term, in the very, very short term, if, you, if states and territories went hard on this, how many jobs could you get? And we were like, in the very short term, it's like 76,000 jobs. Wow. Intentionally, extremely conservative with those numbers. That was just yeah. short-term stimulus. Hit this button, what do you get at the other side? Um, but then you also have other organisations like BZE who have done, you know, their what they're calling the Million Jobs Plan actually has more than a million jobs in it, which is more yeah. about that mm. big picture long-term vision stuff. So we have, you know, relatively small number because it was like, what can you get now? Yeah. Uh, Tim, it's still Tim, fairly staggering, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Tim, it looks, I mean, just some of the numbers you put out and so forth in your press release over the last week um, with these requirements of reducing emissions of sort of 75% over 2005 uh, levels by 2030. So we're sitting, we're almost at 2022. Uh, we've got about eight years to achieve a 75% reduction. And in the last, what does that make it? You know, 20 odd years, we've reduced... 
sweet FA, is it fair to say? I mean, how how realistic do you think that is? I mean, is that is that something we can get to? If we really just, I mean, we've seen transformational change with regards to the pandemic and how we've had to change our society. Do, do you think a similar sort of response with regards to climate now would get us to where we need to go in, in that time period? It's a big... So we have partly seen sweet FA because while there has been good work in the renewable sector, that mm. has been more than, in fact, offset by the growth in Australia's gas exporting industry. Most people don't know is creating gas is one of the most emissions-intensive forms of energy generation. And so um, over the last, since 2005, Australia's emissions have fallen 15 million tonnes as a result of renewable energy rollout and increased by 25 million tonnes as a result of the increase in the gas export industry. So while emissions have come down, sweet FA, it's because we've been going into the fossil and so there's a huge potential here. And the other thing is, like, we do have this state and territory action, which is somewhat piecemeal and and while really, really good initiatives taking place, they're early initiatives. So New, mm. uh, New South Wales has massive renewable energy zone plan. Victoria has some great investment opportunities, great, great investment stuff going on here as well. These things are early on. Um, if we went all in on this with a coordinated response led by a competent federal government who actually cared about this issue... Yes, of course we could. Um, that and more. Um, realistically, like it is, it's a matter of how much do we go all shoulders to the wheel on this problem that requires all shoulders to the wheel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it would definitely benefit Australia, particularly like obviously just jobs and growth kind of thing in terms of renewable energy development, but also in avoided um, climate impacts. Along with this, Australia is one of the most vulnerable developed, is probably, I reckon, you, depending on how you quantify it, the most vulnerable developed country on the planet to climate change impacts. Yeah. Uh, and so that's not nothing either. Yep. Well, look, Tim, uh, keep doing what you're doing there at the uh, the Climate Council with your colleagues. It's an important voice that is out there. We'll keep doing what we're doing at our end, and hopefully somewhere in the tw- in between we can we can convince some of these politicians who just don't seem to get it that uh, even if they just do it for the money, it's the right choice to make. So I think, uh, you know, they can be as, as awful as they want to be on that one. If, if it's just for the money, it's still the right choice to make. Thanks so much for chatting to us today, and, and good luck, Tim. Good luck with the ongoing work at the Fix Us All. Thanks, Tapes, for having me. Thanks, Tim. Folks, folks, that was Tim Baxter from the Climate Council. We're going to take a break for some music, and uh, you and I will be back with the rest of the team in just a moment, uh, talking uh, to Gracie about some really cool stuff that she's been looking up in Texas. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, all science lovers. You are listening to Einstein and Gago. I'm Dr. Shane. I've got Dr. Jen, Dr. Ewan, Dr. Uh, Chris KP. He has no PhD, but we still love him. On the line, and we have Gracie on the line from Texas, and she's going to tell some amazing stuff. Gracie, what's happening? Yeah, so today I'm going to talk about self-driving cars. So, cool. And I think people still tend to think of self-driving cars as this like super futuristic thing, right? Um, But actually, we already have cars with self-driving features on the roads right now. And so the main push for autonomous cars in the future is to reduce accidents and also to lower the CO2 emissions by reducing traffic. Right. Um, And the question kind of from how do we work our way up from the self-driving features that we have now to a fully autonomous car? And why is it so difficult to do that? Um, And self-driving kind of tends to be used interchangeably with autonomous, but they're actually different. So self-driving cars can drive themselves in some situations, um, but a human driver basically has to be ready to take control at any time of the car, while autonomous means that the car actually makes its own decisions based on computer programming and machine learning and things like that. Um, So today I'm going to talk about the six different classification levels of self-driving cars um, and kind of the main types of sensors that they use and what challenges still need to be worked out before we get closer to seeing these fully autonomous cars on our roads. Well, I'm learning already. I didn't even know there were six classifications Mm. of uh, these cars. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so the six classifications of vehicle autonomy is what they're called. Um, and they were actually developed by the Society of Automotive Engineers, which is based in the U.S. So this was basically the same group that came up with horsepower ratings. Um, and these levels are from zero to five, are the six levels. So zero is completely manual, and five is completely autonomous. So I'll go through each one. So level zero, like I said, is completely manual. So these are most cars that we have today. And they may actually have some technology to help the driver, like emergency braking. 
is technically considered a level zero, um, which is kind of funny to me that it doesn't technically count as self-driving because it technically doesn't drive the vehicle. And apparently the rule is it doesn't act over a sustained period of time. So emergency braking technically doesn't count as uh, a self-driving feature. Hmm. Yeah, that seems like it. Well, it's I, I've only ever experienced the uh, my car taking over the braking once when I was about I was parking. I was about to back into a tree, and yeah, there that's was this, good. And and it's so sudden. <laughs> I actually lucky. Well, I actually thought it hit the tree, but you know the brake came on so suddenly the car just came to a stop that I didn't initiate. It was a very unusual experience. I was very pleased. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so was the tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, so the next level is called driver assistance, and it actually started coming out in 2007. Um, so these types of cars have some technology for steering or cruise control. So adaptive cruise control could be an example of this. So the car can technically kind of adapt its speed to maintain a safe distance behind another car. Um, and kind of the key for this level is that it can either control steering or speed, but not both at the same time. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Which would you pick if you were going to pick one? <laughs> Well, you either go round or you slow down, don't you? When you get you get that, yeah, you know, yeah. you you got your cruise control set to one hundred four because you know they can't find you at one hundred four, right? And then uh, someone's doing one hundred three, and over time you just sneak up on them on the freeway, and you're like, I got to either go around or slow down. This is painful. Yeah, yeah. Very good, Gracie. What's number three? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so level uh, two actually is the one that we're on next. So yeah, level two is called partial driving. So these cars started becoming available around 2014. So the key to this one is the cars can control both steering and speed at the same time. So something like lane centering. So basically the car uses cameras to keep you in the center of your lane that you're driving in. But a person is obviously still sitting in the driver's seat. Um, and can take control of the car at any time. So some examples of this are kind of these luxury cars. So Tesla Autopilot, Cadillac Super Cruise, those kinds of cars. Hmm. Yeah, I just put I just put a link. Uh, there's a fantastic um, series called Miners Driving in Teslas, and there's a, a guy who's <laughs> who's basically trying to. It's it's a really fantastic communications exercise. It's talking about obviously he's transitioning to you know electric cars, and and he shows all these people who of course have had you know, big V8s and so forth over the years, what it's like to be in an electric Tesla. And, of course, as, as Grace is just saying, Teslas fit this, this category that you're talking about, that they are actually, to some degree, you know, they can drive by themselves. It's quite staggering to watch. So at mm. high speed too. So Very cool. Yeah, so moving into level three now. So the car can not only control steering and speed at the same time, but now we also add in an automated system that monitors the environment. Um, And these are actually coming out now. So level three cars have a feature called Traffic Jam Pilot. And so uh, this feature can make decisions like accelerating past another car that's moving too slowly, which personally to me sounds terrifying. Um, but basically, this is the level where people can take their hands off the wheel and their feet off the pedal only in some situations, they say, um, but still requires human override just in case. Wow. Um, and so, actually, uh, the Honda Legend is coming out in Japan as the first certified level three car. Wow. So, this, this means you could, you could effectively not have your hands on the wheel or the pedals. And as long as you're ready to grab the wheel of the pills really quickly, <laughs> the car will drive you around. That, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. So, see that, it's something I found really – sorry, oh, sorry gonna, go say, ahead. I was just going to say that to me is a car that just increases my anxiety, not one that reduces yeah. it. <laughs> yes. It absolutely. terrifying. I don't think I want to be in that car. Just, <laughs> or, yeah. or on the road yeah, with I, people. I, Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I definitely would not go out of my way to uh, purchase one. And a lot of the holdup, I think, with level three cars coming out seems to be regulation. So actually, mm. the Audi A8 that came out in 2019 was supposed to have this traffic jam pilot feature. So it was supposed to come out as a level three. Um, but in the US, uh, they actually shifted their policies from a federal to a state kind of regulation. And the states never approved the traffic jam pilot feature to be on the roads. So they pulled it. Um mm. And then Europe, in Europe, they decided that all level three cars mean all liability would be transferred to the automaker. Wow. So Audi essentially like pulled the traffic jam pilot feature from all the cars going to the US and, and Europe. And that, that car still came out, but just without the traffic jam pilot 
Because just to give you a view of what that would look like in Australia, Gracie, uh, that would be a, a whole lot of people being pulled over drinking beer, and when they were asked, <laughs> they, they'd just say, oh, man, it's a self-driving car. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not required. You know, yeah. it just... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that that would be the situation in Australia, which would probably... yeah. I can I can I can picture the same thing in Texas, obviously. <laughs> so that's not, not too far off. Well, except, um, except that it, we've got better beer. Yeah. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah. Big admission. I'll give you that one. So what's next, Gracie? What's um, the next level? Yeah, so level four is called high driving automation. Um, and these are projected to be commercially available in the next year or two. Um, so these cars don't require human interaction most of the time is the key. Um, mm. So the person driving still has the option to override. Um, but legislation really limits the use of these cars at this level. Uh, so they can only go at certain speeds. So um, in Australia, a top speed would be like 40 kilometers per hour. Or for my American friends, 25 miles per hour. Mm. Um, so they're mostly used for like ride sharing services. Um, so Google had a prototype of this called the Firefly, and it actually didn't have pedals or a steering wheel. Um, and it was limited to kind of those lower speeds in San Francisco. Wow. And is and there. Then, and then yeah. finally. Yeah, yeah, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go. go. Uh, and then finally, we have a level five. Uh, so level five is obviously the, the highest level. So uh, where the cars basically don't require any human attention. And these are projected to come out in the next decade. So these are currently being tested, but aren't available to the public. And we don't really have any examples of these yet that companies have released. Um, but Apple and Google are actually doing testing for these. Because hmm, that, to me, I mean, level five is where you would really bring in things like freight and so forth, where you don't want people driving trucks for 14 or 16 hours at a stretch. And, you know, like if you had a, a self-driving, you know, freight truck of some type, then, you know, you, you could potentially do a lot of good with that sort of scenario. But would that still be a, an insurance issue? Would that, that question of, of liability still be there? Or, or would that be so much more improved because it's so much clearer as to the who's got who's in charge if you like right yeah i'm not sure that's a really good point i would think that it would be easiest uh like dr shane said to start these in kind of a more automated setting where you're having trucks you know drive from point a to point b Mm. over a course of time and maybe they do that that route repeatedly that would be a lot easier to program right than having to basically have the machine learning technology for the car to be able to keep up with changing traffic conditions and all of that on various different routes, mm-hmm. I would think. Yeah. I think um, uh, I want the one that was in the film iRobot, you know, with the, you know, the, the, where you could basically sit in the back and, and just read a book. Oh, yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> I, and I reckon, I reckon, Dr. Shane, you would have, there would be such an increase in productivity if you could drive to work and be at work. Yeah. Whilst driving well, whilst there, or just having breakfast, you know, so, or, or just sleep, wake me up when I'm five k's out. But I think that that also brings in another thing: we're already working most people to the bone with extraordinary hours. So yes, it might stop them falling asleep at the wheel on the way home, and that being a problem. But most most workplaces, I think, today would just say, "Hey, you're in the car for half an hour. I expect that half an hour. You should be. Working. <laughs> yeah, you, why exactly. weren't you reading your email while you're in your self-driving car?" <laughs> I think there's uh, there's some dangers to this too. So, Gracie, in terms of um, the, I mean, I know one of the things that came up that was pretty big around this stuff was the ethical choices that cars need to make, and that old tram, the tram sort of uh, scenario where you have have two sort of morally ambiguous choices to make, and which one you make, you know, has to somehow be programmed into these cars. Are, are they making good progress on that? Yeah, so I actually didn't find a lot of progress on that, surprisingly. Mm. Although it's it's been cited as one of the most uh, one of the most compelling reasons why obviously people aren't too thrilled about adopting this technology. So it makes me think about. Um, I mean, if you think about when you're driving, how much you rely on human interaction to make your decisions. So things like eye contact with another driver, or maybe yep. like waving someone else forward, mm. um, that would be kind of foremost in my mind. Um, and there have been studies that have been done. Um, that have said that 90% of road accidents are caused by human error. But then we can't really measure how many accidents were prevented yeah. by human yeah, interaction, exactly. right? So, yeah. 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 It, it seems to me as though, you know, what, what we're seeing at the moment is this gradual sort of, you know, slow but steady increase in these automated features to a point where we feel more comfortable with them. I mean, one of the ones that I find interesting at the moment that, that's taking a lot of people to, to get 
their their head around is the idea that their car actually turns off when they're at the traffic lights and these are these are simple technological features but you know i remember talking to a few family members about this and they're like well but won't won't i sort of what happens when i have to get going again you know will there be a delay and you know realizing that the technology is at that point where if it can of course moderate your position in a lane on the road at 100 kilometers per hour as you go around another car it can probably start the car at the lights in a reasonable amount of time (laughs) (laughs) Right. And actually, my car does this. And I remember having a really hard time wrapping my head around it. It really annoyed me, honestly. And actually, there's a there's a button in my car where I can actually turn that feature off. Or if someone else is driving my car, like my husband absolutely hates it. So he'll turn it off anytime that he's driving my car. Um, But then something else that you brought up, um, just kind of being able to uh, basically navigate around other cars on the road. Something that we haven't talked about yet is weather conditions, right? Mm. That could maybe block the sensors or signal interference for multiple cars has been a really big issue that I came across too when reading about this. Yeah, so I know in my vehicle, uh, on occasion, if I've been traveling uh, in a direction that's into the sun, some of the sensors go offline because the cameras um, just get overwhelmed by the the sunlight, especially if it's late in the day and you're driving straight into the the sunlight and it's glary and there's a lot of you know polarized light coming off the off the concrete and so forth. It can it seems to cause problems with it, especially in that some of the cars um, scan the road signs for speed limits. And those systems just go offline, and it just gives you this little, quite distracting warning, actually, that sort of flashes up on your dash, saying, "You know, this system's offline." And I'm thinking, "What system's offline? I don't know what that technical term is. Do you mean, do you mean the braking system? Like, what, what are you talking about?" And you're reading this small text, trying to work out what has what has gone offline. And years ago, I had a car that had that, where when you went around corners at a certain speed, um, it, it sort of flagged this little exclamation mark on the dash and that there was a problem, you know, that you, you may flip the, the vehicle. And there was this one on-ramp to a freeway near my old house that always flagged this thing and it was the most distracting thing you could imagine. And I thought, how many accidents has this little exclamation mark actually caused as opposed to how many yeah. has it prevented? Because some of these things are fairly distracting. You need them in a way that is beneficial. But, of course, the... You know that um, that radar system around the the rear of cars that stops us backing out into oncoming traffic. I think is you know some of these features are quite spectacular. But how much how much worse would it get, Doctor Shane, if we had the voice that we have in every sci-fi movie alerting you to acceleration exceeds recommended velocities? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sensors well, offline, damage ninety five percent. I was very disappointed with uh, with my new with my new Mazda because they took the old navigation voice options out of there, and they had this Aussie bloke as one of the navigation oh. options. And there was all this stuff in there that, honestly, you really had to have spent a fair bit of time in the country in Australia to understand just what this guy was on about. <laughs> because some, <laughs> some of his phrasing, I was like, I, I don't think I've, you know, I grew up in the Western Melbourne and no one really ever spoke <laughs> like that. Even, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was fun. Did I get shattered? Did they get Shannon Knoll to do the voiceover? <laughs> it could have been. So anything anything else, Gracie, before we go to our break? Yeah, no, I think you just wrapped it up really nicely. I mean, it's like once ever, or whenever they figure out kind of how this technology can actually be used to help prevent accidents in 100% of the cases, you know, because if you have mm. 99% effectiveness, it's like that 1% could be an accident, right? Yeah. So, once I kind of get that figured out, I think we'll hopefully see some more self-driving cars on the road. Yep. And to any of those companies doing uh, self-driving car voiceovers, we we at Einstein Go Go, our crew is available to do those voiceovers. We can, you know, we can do something highbrow from Doctor Jen, or at the other end of the stick, at the real bottom of the trench, Chris KP is available. Um, we could we could do the, those navigation voiceovers for you, and those if you dare, <laughs> yeah, if you dare indeed, folks. We're going to take a break uh, for some important station announcements, and we're back in just a few minutes. Uh, Doctor Ewan's going to tell us some important stuff. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. On the line, we've got Gracie from Texas. We've got Dr. Jen, Chris KP, and Dr. Ewan. Ewan's going to tell some important stuff. Buddy, over to you. 
All right. So um, we just recently had World Environment Day on the 5th of June, which is basically a day that the UN um, has established, and that's uh, really aimed at promoting a global awareness, if you like, about the action and need to protect our environment. And, of course, I think it should be fairly obvious uh, that we need to do that. Um, We know that we're now living in what's referred to as the Anthropocene, um, and that's largely because we can see the impact of humans right around the world um, in in a number of ways that we measure that. And, of course, extinction is one of the ways that we do that. So we know that extinction rates are, in some cases, hundreds if not thousands of times above what's considered the normal background rate. And we determine that uh, by looking at the fossil record. So you can look at when species appear in the fossil record, when they disappear, and then you can kind of infer what's the average time span for a species in terms of its existence. And, yeah, in many cases, we're well above those extinction rates that we consider normal. Mm. Um, We've, of course, had the Internet Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity Ecosystem Services, otherwise known as IPBES. (laughs) It's a huge mouthful. Apologies. But importantly, that was a massive document. So 15,000 scientific publications and other sources of information. It is absolutely huge. And essentially, cut to the chase, it says that we're in a real mess. So environments are heading downwards rapidly. Species are disappearing rapidly, as I've just said. And if we want to just look even as in Australia, um, you know, just to bring it back to us, um, you know, Shane obviously spoke with myself and a co-author of a study, uh, Dana Bergstrom, Mm. who published a, a review looking at ecosystems that span right from the tropics to Antarctica, 19 ecosystems, and they are all showing signs of collapse. So, of course, we know the Great Barrier Reef is a prime example of that with coral bleaching. So so we really know that there's a lot of, you know, things going wrong. Um, and I don't really want to dwell on that too much because I think we, we all know that very much and, it, and it's pretty depressing stuff. But I think... Some other things I wanted to highlight, really, I think, uh, are things that probably don't get enough attention, I think, in this argument. And, and one is the economics of all of this. So regardless of whether you want to, you know, conserve the environment for a whole range of reasons that are absolutely worthy in their own right, like species have a right to exist, as an example, there's cultural values of species, there's the aesthetics of species and, and ecosystems. There's huge economic arguments um, for why we should be doing this as well. So... Um, in this huge other report that's just recently come out called the Dasgupta Report, which is the Economics of Biodiversity, again, another massive report that came out of the UK, they estimated that between 1992 and 2014, the capital produced per person has doubled. But over that same um, time period, the natural capital um, per person that, in terms of the impact has decreased by 40%. So, we're seeing massive losses of, um, you know, natural capital, if you like, through our use or unsustainable use of, of the world's resources. And it's estimated, just to put a number on this, that if we continue with our current state of existence in terms of our lifestyles, we would need 1.6 Earths, right, mm. at, at the way we're currently living. And I think that's a really important point just there because... You often hear with this kind of argument, it's a population size problem. And it is. Population absolutely is a big challenge for the world. But I think what also doesn't get enough attention is it's a consumption problem. And a very small proportion um, of the world are consuming a very high proportion of resources. And I think there's an issue there about equity and, um, you know, that's clearly not fair across the world. And so I think that, you know, begs the question about, you know, how, how we live our lives, you know, things that how we eat, um, fashion, of course, is a huge impact on the environment and so forth. And so, but I think more importantly, let's talk about the positive economics that could also come out of taking care of the environment in a better way. And so there was a fantastic study that, or report, I should say, that recently came out for the Australian Academy of Sciences that was done by Deloitte. And they were looking at describing new species So the other challenge that we have, or we have many challenges, but one of the big challenges we have at the moment in the world is we we have millions of species, but we don't actually know how many we have. Mm. So 70% of the world's species are undescribed, we think. So, and the way that we determine that is we go to areas, we survey for species, you know, whether it's a rainforest or somewhere else, and we go, okay, well, how many of these do we know and how many are new? And then, of course, you can kind of extrapolate and make an estimate of, therefore, how many species remain to be described. And it's about 70%, which is 
pretty staggering when you think about it. But what this report showed was they are aiming to try and ramp up taxonomy in the coming decade in Australia, like really ramp it up and try and describe all of Australia's estimated 700,000 species. And they estimate that if you were to do that, for every dollar invested in describing a new species, potentially up to $35 would come back to the economy as a benefit. And that might be through, uh, you know, for health reasons, of course, you know, the lost products come from health, um, just generating the jobs that would be required to go out and do these surveys, um, waste treatment, um, all these other benefits that if we had a better understanding of our species, what they do, their functions and so on and so forth, there's huge economic benefit. You, you and just, I mean, we don't have long, but one question I have for you, is there any correlation that we know of between the, the species that we don't know about and them perhaps being more likely to be the first ones eliminated? Because I have this sort of, in my head, they're the ones that are over smaller ranges that we would find them and hence perhaps more susceptible to these changes. Is there any, any work on that between that correlation? Yeah, so we're losing species uh, from some groups uh, in high proportions, and that includes large mammals mm. um, because they tend to be low population size and so forth. But it's also important to know that we are losing really high numbers of invertebrates and particularly from, uh, you know, as an example, rainforests uh, and areas uh, that generally don't get as much um, research and attention, often because they're also in developing parts of the world. So there's all these uh, insects, uh, also fungi, uh, plants, a whole whole range of groups that just don't get the attention that, say, mammals or birds do. And, of course, we all know that insects and so forth, you know, have these important roles in terms of pollinating and so forth, breaking down nutrients. So they're part of, you know, really important cycles. So, you know, losing these species Mm. is a big problem. But I think, again, I want to sort of, you know, dwell on positives as well um, that are, you know, possible in terms of tackling these issues. Citizen science, of course, is a really big one that's taken off in the last couple of decades or so. We know like great projects like eBird where people can report report bird sightings, the Frog Project that the Australian Museum is putting out that's documenting frogs all over Australia by their calls that you can just put on your mobile phone. It's logged, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of calls already, maybe even millions. Quest the game. Um, so there's a really big role for collecting information from citizen science. The other important point I want to make is that we need to have people as part of environments. So there's been this notion for a long time that, to save nature, we need wilderness areas and wilderness should be devoid of humans. But that, of course, is a false notion because Indigenous people in particular have been shaping environments for millennia and caring for environments for millennia. So there's an argument to say that in some cases mm. losing people from environments has actually caused part of the problem. Yep, yep. And, and, and I guess the final point is reconfiguring our cities and the places that we live, you know, through green design, urban and and better architecture, we could actually have more in biodiversity in our cities. And our cities, you know, uh, have lots of of species in them. So a study that came out showed that 39 endangered species in Australian cities were largely found in those cities. So, you know, uh, Melbourne, Sydney Mm. and so forth. So there's there's huge opportunities. So I think I want to, you know, finish on that positive note. Yes, big challenges, but big opportunities as well. Thank you, Ewan, and thank you to the whole team for being part of the show today, folks. You've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. A big thank you to Gracie for coming in from Texas and for Chris KP, who's been on a bike generating electricity because he's in uh, storm-ridden <laughs> Victoria. Uh, Dr. Dan, Jen, Dr. Ewan, good to chat. Have a great Sunday, folks. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Einstein the Go-Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.